cuties. I'm Layman Pascal for the Integral Stage, and this is our second interview with Samuel and Linda Bonder, the spiritual husband and wife team and lead teacher transmitters of the Waking Down and Mutuality Project, White Hot Yoga of the Heart, and the Human Sun teachings. Their contention or hunch is that they've tapped into a new mode of existential and spiritual activity that involves waking up and waking down into the paradox of our finite and infinite nature and our broken zones at an organic pace in a pure network of transmission that catalyzes changes simultaneously deeply human and deeply transcendental. That sounds pretty good, right? All right. Well, before we get to all the questions that are strewn across the beaches of my mind, uh, you mentioned to me about an hour ago, you've got an upcoming book, The Sun in Your Heart is Rising, which you said was likely your most important book ever. So what's the rationale behind that claim? Well, thank you. Thank you for asking. Not like I didn't set it up. <laughs> After many years of writing and many books. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's it. I, I kind of gave up on putting out spiritual books. I don't know, over a decade ago, mainly because the amount of work it takes to get a book done and actually out there and read compared to what you can earn, you know, it's, it's a charitable act for most people <laughs> and certainly people in our, most people in our world. And so, you know, partly practical necessity, but also looking back our work has really been undergoing uh, a refinement, an evolutionary kind of next phasing that's, uh, that's been going on for a while. And part of the reason I say likely most important is, among other things, just, you know, I'm now in my early 70s. Uh, we won't mention Linda's age, but, you know, a, a little over 29. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and so the feeling here is we need to put something out that that really lays out what our work is and the pieces of it that we have consistently felt are important evolutionary innovations uh, and in some ways disruptive to a lot of what we've inherited from tradition. But, you know, in the spirit of, uh, if we're seeing far, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. They've made us possible. And so we need to lay it out in some detail. And I like to think, one of the ways I, I know myself is uh, I'm something of a Dharma artist. Uh, you know, I'm constantly throwing another splotches of paint up uh, up against the walls and stuff. And and Linda's extremely creative. Also, we're looking for the book to be uh, uh, holistically appealing to as many of our senses as we can bring into play. We're not going to have scratch and sniff, but uh, you know, she's a, a brilliant photographer, and we realized a way for her photography to actually not just grace the book, but be a primal part of the communication uh, as we go through the various ways that we can word these things. Another reason why I like to be creative is because one of the things that we've always departed from is the notion that any particular way of wording 
truths and so forth is just that it's a way of doing it it's not an eternal statement and everything that's said is at best uh, of a relatively symbolic expression about what is multi-dimensional mm -hmm. so to have Linda's photography also her art uh, in the ebook version we'll have live links to uh, her music and other music uh, audios videos uh, we just want a book that's very rich and full and we're hoping <laughs> It's, we're going to need some some funding to do it right because we also want to make it available at a very affordable <laughs> price. So that when people see the book and see the price tag, it's like, you know, no brainer. Got to mm -hmm. have it. Yeah. And the kind of thing that folks will dip into, there'll be cartoons, snippets of songs and, you know, stuff from the mass mm -hmm. culture that support this basic theme of these bodies coming alive and awake with that great nature that we call the capital H heart. Yeah, so. I think that that's gonna really sing to a lot of people because of the diversity that we're bringing into this particular communication in one book. You know, it's, it's going to be very eclectic and yet weaving in our teachings and, yeah. and asking questions and interviewing friends and fellow followers and uh, seekers and, realizers to see what kind of stories we can interweave within the book itself too and have it all kind of gel yeah. so it's it's quite an undertaking but we're very excited about it yeah terrific it sounds very rich and uh and what they used to call avant-garde <laughs> well i hope so you know, I mean, one of the ways i i began to think about it and you know i i've written a bunch of books published them in various forms and in my creative process, at some point, the book assumes a kind of avatar in my heart mind. Mm -hmm. So there's an imaginal personality there. Uh, it's always female. It's all she. And this one pretty quickly announced, I am the queen. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's this sense of, of being called to stretch even the concept of a book. So one way I hope it will come across is if this is a book, then it's to a regular book, which is basically black words on a white printed page, the way an iPhone is to a rotary dial telephone. Yeah, it's a book, but it's, it's a whole other animal. And, um, so that's our hope. And yeah. thank you for asking. And, yes. um, you know, let, please lend your, your prayers and blessings. And uh, hopefully in the next, probably, uh, realistically 2023 if we can if we can get cooking on it now because as you as you can tell there's a bunch of elements to bring in well I, i'm intrigued <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about spiritual democracy um you know democracy is uh it's a fascinating concept on its own right our our ancestors famously disparaged democracy in a lot of ways they were adapted to hereditary hierarchies, and uh, I think they just couldn't quite see how you would avoid mob rule and uneducated populist swarms. Mm -hmm. Today, we have a better sense of uh, the importance of its fairness and also it being a smarter way because it distributes intelligence over more perspectives. Mm -hmm. 
but in practice, we don't um, we don't have as much democracy as we think. Our political systems are badly incentivized. Our voting procedures are inadequate. Our workplaces are authoritarian hierarchies. So people have been pushing back for a while, trying to make democracy more robust and more real. There's all kinds of holacracy and democratic socialism and cooperatives and new voting procedures. But one area where democracy sounds a little bit strange is our spiritual life. As we're used to on this planet, either top-down religious bureaucracies or the superhuman status of charismatic teachers. So how and why do you go about democratizing spirituality? Thank you, and, and well said. Uh, yes, I, I like to uh, kind of uh, butcher the, the famous Churchill quote, probably say it the way he was really thinking it, uh, which in the butchered form is something like, democracy sucks, but it's the best we've got. And... I think that applies here as well. We are only beginning to learn both the why and the how of the democratic impulse. Uh, and obviously in this country and practically everywhere on earth, um, it's still a pretty early early stage of the struggle, I expect. For, for us, for me, I did my training time uh, in the spiritual hierarchies of the, the great charismatic guru type characters. And when I departed from that world, you know, after a couple of decades of, you know, doing, doing my best to, to, to live it, live it in that fashion. And then rather suddenly went through the, activation of the awakening process that I had been seeking all along. And within a few months, you know, it, it completed itself in a fundamental way and I became capable of helping others. Uh, and that, that happened spontaneously. My friends started saying, you know, mm -hmm. I, I know you're, you know, you're, you're babbling a lot about consciousness and really being here these days and all that, but something's happening in me. We got to talk. And that then led to an understanding of, oh, yeah, you know, it makes sense. I didn't really fit in that world. I'm much more oriented toward, a, in effect, a Jeffersonian democratic view. But more to the point, uh, and by the way, the divine feminine was a big factor in this, the goddess, if you will. More to the point, it was, it was about the recognition for one thing that if I could go through this after breaking all my vows and so forth to a very powerful guru in order to leave and find my own way, then pretty much anybody could who had a strong desire. But I really was getting that those old ways, you know, you referred to it as kind of hereditary hierarchies and all that, those old ways were literally... Uh, stuffed to the chokehold with trappings. You know, whether it's from an ancient Oriental culture or the assumption of the existential superiority of the realized one. Uh, and so I just began to feel, well, you know, this is not working. No wonder hum humanity has never really matured spiritually 
you know, in any kind of mass way. Um, let's try democratizing this. Let's see what we can do to get everybody access to the fundamental empowerments, give them, you know, what I had realized myself, the necessity of owning authority in their process. You know, not without helpful like suggestions from mm -hmm. people who are in a something of a teaching, we're more friendly to a coaching mode, whether whatever we call ourselves these days. And let's see what happens. And you know, in the course of our the years of our work, we've had quite a bit of success on a small, intimate scale. And part of what we're hoping to do is help in this massively transforming, exponentially changing 21st century to see if this can somehow be broadened out to a lot more people, have a lot more people aware of the possibility and with access to resources. Yeah, I really loved what you said way back in the day when I first met you in 1994. I sat with Samuel for the first time and I would listen to him speak about how he really wanted company and how each individual is exactly that, very, very much an individual and their process will unfold in unique ways. And yeah. so discovering that not just within themselves, but getting skilled assistance deep listening and holding and asking questions. And all of this was so resonant for me because I had come from a background of such an eclectic kind of seeking, lots of great things. And, and I, I gleaned lots of wisdom from different paths, different recordings, different sittings. But when I heard Samuel talking about, you know, sitting on the floor equal with everybody, you know, saying, find your way and let's do this together and let's bring this out into the world. That just really resonated with me. I found myself um, in the past prior to meeting Samuel, not really finding a path that I could land in and say, this is absolutely what I'm going to focus on for quite some time. So um, when I heard Samuel, felt Samuel, listened deeply, felt how I was opening up, my heart opened up, and I would look around the room and I could see that others were feeling similarly <clears throat> back in the day. And that was it for me. I, I found other things fell away and I felt very welcomed as an individual and was really intrigued by that and wanted to have more and wanted to actually learn and realize what he was talking about, waking down, the realization of consciousness and embodiment, you know, simultaneously, all, every part of who you are here. So that was also part of his teachings. The teacher transmitter, Andrew Cohen, at least in my dealings with him, uh, seems to be more humane and humorous and humble than maybe he was a couple of decades ago. But he still argues very strongly for the need to maintain and resurrect the spiritual authority of the guru. He does it in a certain way. But um, what do you make of that, people who are calling for renewed spiritual authority? Um, great question. And uh, yeah, thank you, Andrew. Uh, 
Glad you've, you've made use of the tumble you took. And, and he's, you know, we have a, a friendship with him. Um, so we've, I've talked with him about these things. To me, it's a kind of a yes and no to that. And uh, one way we like to express it is the senior principle, as best we can tell, because it's the, it's the same sun rising in really the one and only capital H heart of all hearts. And that, that's organismic. It's not metaphorical. Um, so there's an existential equality. We could say it's, it's horizontal. But that doesn't, you know, um, flatten everything else out so that there's, there is no such thing as a hierarchy of skills. Also, uh, generations of, uh, a generational kind of hierarchy. Those who've come before lived through something that then makes less of what they had to live through necessary for people who come after. You know, so we have our differences and distinctions. And spiritual authority needs to be made room for, for the, the sake of the, you know, the, the fullest possible, or the most auspicious unfolding of all these transformational changes. But uh, I, my feeling is, I mean, Andrew and I actually have talked about uh, uh, the, the, the Buddhist uh, uh, principle of the triple gem. You know, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, or the awakened one, the teachings, the community. And one of the things about that for us is that even that concept is kind of straining under the pressure of the evolutionary democratization so that it's more like, you know, there are different people who we don't have to all exalt them in some kind of way. Uh, they, don't, they don't need to be looking like the Buddha, but they're activators. They're, they're living their awakeness, their realization in such a way that they tend to have an impact on others that then can be mutually managed for the, benefit, the best benefit of all. And, you know, Dharma is a good word because it's typically translated as teaching truth, the law, but at a deeper level, it just means that which sustains. And so, you know, that another Buddhist phrase, let 10,000 dharmas blossom or whatever. Mm. Our sense is that that's actually hardwired into the evolutionary process. And similarly, for us at this point in our work, there really isn't a single community that is the community, but rather people find their, Linda likes to say, find your tribe, you know, which is often a few people who really get who you are and can both hold you and bless you and be with you and also mirror to you in a way that's trustable and, and something you can receive. So I agree that spiritual authority shouldn't be treated like bathwater. But on the other hand, we got to be wary of putting those babies on thrones. <laughs> and that, and that's, that's going back to the beginning of my work, I mean, I really did make a point of sitting on the floor. Other people were on a couch or chair, some of them, 
but I, I didn't want even the architecture of the room to visually convey that I was above uh, until my knees <laughs> wouldn't permit it anymore. <laughs> That's terrific. Um, you know, speaking of Andrew, that community has been very focused on intersubjective enlightenment for a while. Mm -hmm. And that seems similar, but maybe not exactly the same as the mutuality principle. Uh, I wonder how you see that similarity and that difference and how you feel about this idea that maybe the next avatar is a we. Mm. I think there's, to answer that part first, I, I think that's, that's true. Uh, uh, our friend uh, Terry Patton, uh, well, famously to me, I, I, he never really did much with it himself in writing, but uh, he wrote, we am that. And I feel like uh, there's, there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, I don't know what they meant and mean by intersubjective enlightenment so much. I think that's mostly at the level of what some of our friends have called in our work mutuality, mutual onlyness, you know, a mutual oneness in being that is so palpable and tangible that it's you know, it, it's prominent in our daily living. For us, mutuality also um, kind of gets off the pedestal, rolls up its sleeves, goes into the trenches, gets down in the muck. Uh, there's a lot of uh, acknowledging the existential validity or reality of, of our egos, our our shadow stuff, our what we call broken zones. And so mutuality is, is often a pretty messy process because all of our parts tend to get activated when, when the being is given the green light, you know, and that greater heart nature in effect takes over or gives the green light to becoming self-realized as us is another way of kind of looking at the whole process. Uh, all the pieces are, 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 are given green lights and there's a kind of a rush to the podium. Mm -hmm. So our, our practice of mutuality, uh, you know, is I expect a good deal messier uh, at times, but it's also so exalting because mm -hmm. for people to be able to speak they're really drecky parts of themselves that, that they've been trained all their lives, you know, don't you dare bring this out and have a room full of people sitting there who, you know, there's tears in their eyes often. And they're basically both saying and radiating a giant welcome. Yeah, that too. And that allows them uh, a, a spontaneous ongoing integration of our different parts. We would, we yeah, would do um, in in house in our home quite often retreats and gatherings and other places we've traveled around the world actually in the past doing retreats and offerings and the way that we looked at the gathering in the room is we're all creating an alchemical chamber where we are steeping you know with each other and for each other. And that is a powerful energy. It's a powerful force. 
And it's part of the we space. It's part of living in real mutuality and being able to have each individual in their own way, listen deeply, hold the person, ask questions if time is allotted for that, which we do quite often. And what happens is in that chamber, in that experience, individuals land more fully in themselves because they're hearing somebody's story. And it's for us, stories are important. <laughs> Talking about mm -hmm. what is up for mm -hmm. you is really, really crucial to the unfoldment and deepening and realization of who you are here. And so when someone is sharing something really intimate and vulnerable, another person may be sitting there hearing it and going, oh my gosh, I can so relate to that and I've never dared to speak it. And so when they have the opportunity to show up in this space, in this container, it is so rich and it's, it's so activating. And we felt it many, many, many times through the years of, of these events. And even now, obviously with the pandemic, doing Zoom sessions and Zoom events that Samuel and I have been doing just as everyone else has been, <laughs> we're seeing that it still, it still communicates. It's not the same as the bodies being in the same room and being able to hug each other and to look each other face to face, but there is a transmission in that connection even over the, the computer. And I like to say consciousness knows no time and space. And we're all connecting in this field once again and growth, creating more wisdom, deepening in our own process, which always goes on. Doesn't matter if you feel you've had an awakening or you've lived an awakening for many years, it continues that evolution and growth. I, I recall a sentence I read on one of your websites. I think it was something like, my emphatic but unprovable answer is yes. And I thought, oh, that's so bonder. I, I <laughs> love its accuracy, its energy, its nuance. There's a sensitivity and there's a confidence that we, we don't lose anything. We only gain by inhabiting a space that is epistemically humble and fundamentally open. <laughs> yes. uh, so for me, that's, it's very beautiful. It's very integrative. But... Mm. How do you distinguish, if distinction is even possible, between whether this is the dawning of a new mode of human spirituality or whether it's just your particular style and communication preferences? Uh, thank you. Uh, great question. And um, uh, I forget exactly how you worded it. How do you prove it, did you say? Or no? You well, say I, is, is there some way to distinguish? Like, is this. How do you yeah. distinguish? <laughs> I think the, the only distinction has to be rooted in clay-footed humility, which is that we can't know. You know, I mean, if best case scenario, we're still in, we're not just still in the birth canal, it looks like we're in the early stages. <laughs> and, you know, uh, could be a breech birth or who knows, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, I, I think the uh, that was one of the 10 questions that, uh, uh, we, we posted and then uh, conveniently worded so we could respond to them the way we wanted to. <laughs> but that's what you do when you're writing. 
Um, and the question was, uh, you know, is, is this embodied heart awakeness uh, that we talk about and, and hopefully are able to convey and uh, live to others, is, is there a, a, a democratizing dissemination going on? Uh, is that what's up here? Can it be even democratized? And that was uh, the answer there. Thank you for, for uh, your, your commentary. I love that. And, and, you know, I think we can't know at this stage. Uh, so we just keep our shoulders to the wheel best we can make our contributions best we can, and uh, especially be of help to those coming up uh, who are younger and are likely to have many multiple decades of living this kind of thing out, taking it its next steps. But, um, you know, no, no way to know right now, for sure. I mean, and literally with our work, and, you know, and we'll, be, we'll be frank about this in the book, we don't know if this is you know, a, a giant contribution that all humanity would someday partake of, even if they don't know the language we use, or if this is sort of a marginal thing of that strange crowd that started <laughs> in, you know, the late 20th century and opened up the 21st, thankfully disappeared from the stage soon enough so others can get down. <laughs> those old folks, those pioneers in the old days. You know, there's no way to know right now. I do feel, have always felt that, uh, and that's part of the reason, again, for this, this book and these surrounding communications, that we haven't, I feel personally, that I have not done justice to the calling of us doing our best to make this intelligible and accessible to the most people as possible. Meantime, the kind of people who are showing up, you know, I mean, every time I go on Clubhouse, I marvel at, you know, the brilliance and, and the humility and the heartfulness uh, of people, many of them decades younger than I am. Uh, and a lot of them, you know, more like my age and in between. And, and just the degree to which people are in whatever ways, wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily call it spiritual, but they're, you know, they're, they're awakening, they're coming into their own, they're activated to make their gifts felt. It's and, such a great platform for people yeah. to be able to express themselves, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, so, you know, my sense is that this is a, a next phase opening up, at least for us and a whole lot of the rest of us who are active right now, and we'll see how far we can take it all. It makes me curious about how um, different teachers and adept transmitters from different lineages and teachings would work together in this kind of a future. You two have a style that seems very appropriate for working constructively with others, uh, but I'm, you know, I'm thinking of Ken Wilbur describing the need to set up an integral spiritual center. I think he said at one point, get them in a room. They can't all be the most enlightened ever. And so there's this, <laughs> <laughs> this notion of how do spiritual thought leaders adapt to each other? 
And I'm curious, like what you've seen or observed about those sorts of interactions. You mentioned Andrew, you mentioned Terry. Mm -hmm. Is there, is there mutual recognition? Is there wariness? Is there superficial cooperation or a deep possibility of collaboration? What's it like among people who are regarded as teacher transmitters? Great question. You know, talking about the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> Boy, that, you know, that question takes me back to when you and I used to go to the integral experience um, mm -hmm. gatherings where there were many, many teachers involved in that and teaching in separate rooms. And we were invited to do that for a few years of teaching our particular articulation of waking down in mutuality. And on occasion, we could have one-on-ones or one-on-two or three with individuals. And what I found so enlightening and enlivening about those connections is the, the uniqueness of people's articulations and how they work with people and how for the people who are gravitating toward that particular teacher, I like to use the phrase, that sings to their heart. And I always say, whatever sings to your heart, please go there. You know, if it's waking down a mutuality or the white hot yoga of the heart or human sun Institute, all of the things that we talk about, great. We welcome you, but we always say blessings on your journey no matter where it leads you. And so back in the day when we had these kind of connections face to face at these events, I found it really, really wonderful because I would hear the ways that these teachers or coaches, if you will, or how, whatever they may want to call themselves, how they were showing up and how people were benefiting from that. And I learned from that. And I could actually take the pieces that sang to my heart and utilize that in my own form of suggesting, listening deeply, coaching, teaching, that sort of thing. So we haven't had the connections uh, recently as much as we would love to have with uh, other teachers around, primarily because of the pandemic. But we do have great conversations with Terry and other teachers who are closer to us. And of course, Andrew, we've had connections in the past with, and Ken, dear Ken, who has been a dear friend for many years. Haven't had a lot of connection with him lately either, but you know, these yeah. individuals yeah. sit and live so beautifully and warmly in our hearts. Yeah, and I think it's also true that um, there, there isn't, I mean, a lot of people do summits together and, you know, kind of joint venture affiliate, yeah. promoting each other's work. But I think at this stage, uh, it's, it's still the case. Uh, I, I, I like the language there, a certain amount of wariness. Uh, from early on, you know, to me, it, it was evident people get kind of plugged in to their own sort of version of the current. And they've, they've, their fundamental commitment and fidelity is to steward that. And to the degree that it, it makes possible really deep collaboration, some people are able to move into those. 
Uh, I think that's easier for people who kind of share a general tradition. I mean, I think it, you know, that's, that's an interesting question, actually. I mean, is it easier for uh, a mindfulness Buddhist to collaborate with a Vajrayana Buddhist than with a, a Christian centering prayer uh, Benedictine or whatever? I don't know the answer to that. But in general, I feel like we're all still pretty atomized you know, in our own, our own work and expression. And, uh, and, you know, there's a, a little bit of good old fashioned ego and all that as well. Uh, so I don't think that's bad. I think that's just part of the dance. Uh, but obviously to be, you know, we want to be wary of having that, you know, so prominent that it gets in the way and mucks up the work. Great question, though. I don't know if you've asked others, but <laughs> no, it only occurred to me recently that I was curious about it. <laughs> I would love to hear your your feelings, sense around that. Have you witnessed? Yeah, um, yeah teachers coming together. Help. I think people in general, and that includes teachers, are getting better at intersubjectivity skills. Yes. Uh, but because those can be skills can sometimes be learned at a superficial level, it isn't necessarily the same as how you deeply feel. I'm, I'm not totally sure, you know, how, how rich and how deep and how authentic this new interpersonal renaissance is, but I, I hope it's going forward. Mm. Uh, I don't really know whether it would be better to have more collaboration or better to just trust that all the individual teachers and teaching styles are somehow collectively having a, a, a side effect of just doing their own good work. I don't know which one's best, but I think everybody's got a hunch. There's a lot more collaboration and collectivity coming. <laughs> yes. Yes. Without them even knowing it, perhaps like what you're saying, you know, a good example of that is so many teachers, invited teachers even, are now speaking more about embodiment, speaking more and teaching more about being in life, being in relationships, yeah. where in the past, when Samuel would speak about embodiment back in 94, not a lot of people were talking about that. It was a lot of transcendent uh, traditions that were really in the foreground and that continued and still does to today. But we're seeing, we're seeing that the embodiment aspect of spirituality, of being in relationships and how that helps you evolve and grow and deepen is so, so important. So that's a good example right there of how things have kind of viraled out, if you will, in the field and the listening and the observation of how people are landing, showing up and what their needs are. Some teachers are really shifting and, and changing perspectives and allowing that teaching actually and that existence to land fully in them as well. As I said, everybody continues to grow and evolve. <laughs> and that's the good thing. <laughs> Well, you know, another thing that I've heard you say, Linda, is that everything transmits. Mm. We're, um, 
constantly bathed in interpenetrating fields and flow and mutually adaptive resonances in which the qualities of all beings pass into each other. But in addition to that, there are some practical differences. I seem to be more bathed in the spirit of the forest when I'm in the forest. So various kinds of proximity, which aren't always physical proximity, seem to make a difference. Uh, The way that I use my attention and my feeling and my somatic presence seems to make a difference. So I'm curious, you know, what have you observed and or speculated uh, makes some transmissions more valuable and also more accessible to people that want to be more involved with that transmission? Mm. Thank you. Yeah, uh, great question. Well, our our follow up (laughs) kind of our take on it is that. And what, what has made our work successful for those who, who, who you know, kind of bear down with it? Uh, and I, I remember back in the early 2000s, after about a decade or so of, uh, of doing this, and, you know, a good number of people had stabilized uh, in uh, essentially an unshakable realization, whether you would call it non-dual by this criterion or that. We don't need to be that nitpicky about it just at the moment. But what they were living was something that was the given of their daily life and they didn't have to try to make it happen. And they were very grateful. And I realized that I could only count maybe on you know both hands, the number of people who had been diligently applying themselves to the work who had not gone through that shift within several months to several years of starting with us. And yes, some of them were longtime seekers and meditators with an enormous wealth of traditional background. Others didn't have that. I mean, Linda, Linda was one. You know, I had done all that training, you know, to the with the gurus, and her uh, quest had been much more. Uh, your word for it was eclectic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to me, what what I see. Uh, seems to make a big difference. Let's put it that way. That's nice and speculative. Uh, and by the way, I do, I do look forward to social science starting to put its you know, microscope on all this and seeing what's here, uh, getting the, the, the metrics of it all. But uh, giving people the opportunity to start to question what we call the spirit matter split. The the degree to which, for instance, some of the traditional language is about liberation from the wheel of birth and death or achieving salvation in heaven. And so people are motivated by a, a, a philosophical premise, if you will, they wouldn't necessarily use that word, but it's their worldview that there is something better somewhere up or out or definitely not here. And uh, our approach has consistently been, let's at least question that. And in practical terms, part of how that works out uh, is helping people reframe uh, what their worst stuff really is. As, as, I, as I once said to, to, to one person, whose stuff is it, yours or God's? 
You know, who, who's, who's broken zones is that? Is it merely your ego struggling in the world to get to the great reality? Or is it that greater nature coming alive and awake and sure enough, shining its light on all the possible pieces here? So there's a, a lot of reframing that has to relieve people of, you know, the fundamental assumption of sin or karma or I'm wrong, I'm bad. And, you know, of course, there's tons of that that we've gotten from all kinds of conditioning, parents and birth traditions and what we've picked up along the way. But in general, for, for all of these realizations to become more accessible, they have to become less transcendentally inaccessible. The realizations themselves have to be lived in a different way. And as Linda was saying, you know, it really, really is true. And, and by the way, I'm not proposing that it all viraled out from us. I think it's that great heart of being yeah. that everybody, we all share, yeah. that's coming alive and awake in as and through everybody. We say Indeed. that fairly mantrically. And so it's requiring uh, a revisioning of what awakeness is. And, and, and deeper than that, more primal, what are the qualities that we need for a sane, sustainable, and continually growing and refining human life here together? Mm, thank you for all of that. I want to go to the, the question that you, you um, said about or not question, but the comment of everything transmits. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and yes, indeed. And I'm, I'm also referring to inanimate objects and nature, as you mentioned, going into the forest mm -hmm. and feeling that um, immense energy from the trees and from the plant life there and the soil and being you know, immersed into that field. Just yesterday, we did another podcast yesterday, and <laughs> this is an interesting um, example and experience of perhaps, mysteriously, transmission that's happening, that was happening here in our room with our friend across on the computer. A fly was really bothering. <laughs> There's just would not leave the room and it continued to fly around our heads and our faces and our shoulders <laughs> for the entire time just about but at one point about 20 minutes into our time i i thought oh please as we're speaking please just land and relax land and relax <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting talk about transmission or radiation perhaps this fly flew into my palm and I had my palms up resting comfortably on my legs, flew into my palm and stayed there for about 20 minutes, walked around a little bit, walked up my arm, went back to the palm, stayed there. And I'm, I would check on it and I would just kind of love it. And at one point, this transmission or connection to creatures and things came into the conversation. And I said, well, interestingly enough, I have a fly on my finger right now. And the fly was on my finger right there as if to say, yeah, I want to be seen. And I went like this up to the, <laughs> the lens. 
And he stayed there. And then I pulled it back and I put my hand back down and he stayed on my hand that entire time. Mysterious, but I feel like that beautiful little creature, that creature was transmitting to us as well as us transmitting to his or her presence, right? So I wanted to tell that story because it was really quite mysterious and, and wonderful and everything transmits. And there's a level of intensity of the transmission as well, or the radiation. Everyone, depending on where you are as a human, divinely human being, each individual is transmitting who and, and where you are in your process and in perhaps the levels and lines of your development and your personality and your wounding or whatever it might be. And so that actually opens up more of the wonderful exploration of being with individuals and really feeling them and there's a phrase we like to use, understanding the logic of their being and what they're communicating, whether it be verbally or energetically. And um, it's a very wonderful exploration. And that's what we do with each person that we work with individually, as well as in a group container as we scan and try to connect with everyone and feel the energy in the room once again. So. Thank you for asking about transmission. I've got like a half a thought here. <laughs> you know, it seems like in most people's minds, there's a difference between something that humans have a lot of and the fly has a little bit of and wow. that uh, rocks don't really have any of. <laughs> right. So that everything might transmit. But some of those transmissions involve the sense that there's a a, a real self there, a subjectivity. Mm -hmm. And I was speaking the other day with Rupert Sheldrake about whether or not the sun is conscious as an entity. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered what you thought of that because you speak in terms of radiance. And I know that the sun is a powerful metaphor and how you describe some of the work that you're doing. Do you, do you have a sense one way or the other of whether you would regard stars and suns and maybe galaxies or other large facets of nature is having something like um, an independent interiority in terms of how we co-transmit with them? Another really wonderful question. And you know, I think this is, uh, this is where the indigenous peoples of the world have a lot to presently teach us. I remember reading in one book somewhere where a, a Native American woman who had become quite accomplished in the, the, the Western worldview part of the world. So she, you know, she had her chops and her degrees and all the rest of it. But she, she made this simple point. You know, she said a primary difference between our worldview and that of the prevailing Western, quote unquote, materialistic, however she described it, is that to us, the world is alive. And everything is alive. And so, you know, independent interiority is a really specific way to put it. I don't know. But I think it also goes to what we might call imaginality. 
the degree to which the imaginal dimension realms capacities sensitivities skills are alive in us and are and grant us uh, 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 again sometimes experiences or convictions that uh, quoting you quoting me are, you know, emphatically so for us but unprovable uh, to anybody else except maybe someone who happens to share that or comes into sharing for me yeah all all of nature is is alive in a fundamental way i sense uh, I mean, uh, our, our, our company is, is named after Mount Tamalpais here in Marin County, uh, neighboring county nearby. And that mountain kind of announced her presence to me. She's generally regarded as a she. I mean, there, you know, there's always a who knows on this stuff, I think, if we're honest. But it, it was so prominent a factor of my experience that for a long time, well, for a particular time in our lives together in the mid-2000s, we lived in a series of houses, each of which had direct views of the mountain. Because I just felt like I had to have that. And at a certain point, it became apparent that the mutual, what felt like a mutual transmission had completed its necessary course and that we were free to relocate elsewhere and this now Sonoma Valley feels like our home. So yes, definitely to my sense that, you know, if, if, if my consciousness were wired to be able to meet the sun uh, as a some kind of an independent beingness or entity, uh, I would probably be humbled by what I encounter. Uh, but in any case, there is this basic sense of the world and not just the creatures, but also uh, the rocks and the waters you know, have their own livingness and to some degree, their own conscious self-awareness, unprovable. Yeah, unprovable, but but I always make sure to acknowledge. <laughs> somewhere, somewhere on the spectrum of provability. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. the practice of earthing, which you probably are aware of, where an individual can sit with their bare feet in sand or concrete, but really dirt or sand really is, is the best form of receiving the transmission of the core of the planet, Pachamama, Mother Earth. And it is a very healing energy and a very healing force that literally can change some physical dynamics that are happening within the human body. And there's been a book written about that, you know, probably more than one book written about that. So that's an example of the, the energy aspect of what you're asking. I'm, I'm glad we're on this subtopic because I would wanted to ask about potential relationships between your work and ecology. Mm. Uh, it seems like the spirituality of the future, just given the needs of the system, has got to be more 
ecologically as well as embodiment oriented and maybe a little bit more shamanic than it's been for a while. And I personally grew up in a really benign rural environment. So my spirituality has always been very immersed in the imaginal dimension of ecology. Uh, I wonder if you're, if you see any trends in, in people who are going through the kind of work and the kind of transformations involved in your work, are there trends in how their relationship to ecology has been changing? And then do you see some kind of, do you see an, an ecological function for the transmission that you're deep working with? Yes. And yes. Uh, I think people are, and it's, it's part of that general trend. Uh, of spirituality surprise coming down into embodiment, showing up, the the heart animating itself as all of this and not merely definable as a transcendental condition. And so the more people are landing here uh, and, and are no longer at war with or suspicious of fundamentally their own materiality, the more also, because it is that, that greater nature that we share with everything and everyone, the more there is the awareness of, wow, we've been soiling the nest here. And, you know, this is red alert time, all hands on deck. And I see more and more people who's, uh, activism goes in those kinds of directions. And in general, I think any spirituality that is so oriented to elsewhere, uh, it, it's going to lose traction. And, you know, I'm talking about over significant time, not necessarily this week or, or this year, but, and, the, and the, the valuation of earth and of matter as absolutely equally divine, real, and important as spirit, consciousness, the unconditional, whatever you want to name and frame that, I think is going to become more and more prominent. And itself, people will, people will be undergoing worldview reframings as that sensitivity opens up more and as we get more and more motivated I mean, really, the great central collaboration of the 21st century has got to be around uh, dealing with, quote unquote, what the havoc we've wreaked in the environment ecologically and what we can do to restore balance to the biosphere. Uh, which, you know, part of, part of the deal here and part of where I feel like folks like us have so much to offer to the people who have conventional power and control and and, and knowledge, the recognition that the inner ecology transformation and healing is equally as important and and necessary to the fullest outer one, uh, I think is is a big piece. I mean, we, we feel a strong calling to be able to work with people who are high impact change makers, among other things, to ensure the most awakened presence coming to bear in all of these kinds of seriously urgent uh, initiatives for humanity. 
one of the reasons why it's crucial for the awakeness of any individual is that it increases and intensifies the awareness of nature, of the ecology, of all things and all beings and all creation. And you, you become sensitized to different aspects of what's happening in the world. Some of the, unfortunately, atrocities that are happening in the world, but as well as some of the really positive movements that are happening in the world to be a change maker and to really focus and if you're not a physical activist, you know, an energetic activist from bringing it to the heart and put blessings out. We do a prayer every single night where blessings to all beings and all creation before we sleep. And that feels appropriate and necessary in these times. seems like i'm thinking about words like surrender and submission that have so long been part of the spiritual vocabulary and you know in the hyper masculine era the sense that matter and life had to be submitted and surrendered to some abstract transcendental principle but maybe more primitively the same concepts and the same wordings were used to say you had to surrender to nature or or to the material environment and there's a, there's a way that these words can be used to mean, you know, a participatory gesture of, of reverence and a whole bodily mood that helps put you in the stream of a transmission. But there's also um, a very valid uh, sense that people have been consciously or unconsciously wrapped up in a political status game through these concepts. Um, where individual sovereignty, say, is surrendered to group power structures, in part because the, the furniture of the languaging enforces those sorts of metaphors. Yeah. Now, you know, what do you think? Should we be um, clarifying and redeeming terms like this, giving them a proper useful designation? Or is there some threshold where we say we, we've got to jettison these metaphors and start to speak differently about the, even the gestural dynamics of transmission and reception? Uh, so you're, you're talking about words and phrases like surrender or submission? Yeah, that could go either way between being a practical part of the transmission process, but could also imply these sort of political status dynamics. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I think, uh, you know, the terminology has its validity, but it really needs to be grounded in an orientation that fundamentally won't permit the, a surrender into exploitability by whether it's a group or, or you know, an individual or, or a, 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 a doctrine. <clears throat> so there's, that then goes back to kind of full circle to democratization. You know, and I mentioned Jefferson, you know, a, a 21st century interpretation of his comment that paraphrasing something like democracy has only got a chance if it's being exercised by an informed populace, by an educated populace. So in our view, the education of 
you know, an authentically sane and, and more or less integrated human being, we're never going to go to quote unquote fully, includes coming into that kind of participatory sovereignty, maybe we could say, where you just can't go there anymore. Mm -hmm. And you might temporarily, as you're exploring in life, you know, kind of get start, get sucked into that degree of, uh, of surrendering of your power, mm -hmm. but you can't stay there long. And that's the kind of people, you know, we, we like to, to see emerging equipped as best they can with the resources we make available. Uh, I, I, kind of a, a joke, and if anybody ever asks me, well, you know, are you a cult leader? You know, part of my response to that is, well, if I am one, I sure suck. 99.9% <laughs> of the people that I help wind up going on and doing their own thing, you know, and sometimes with others and so forth. It's not merely individualism, but, you know, it's, it's to get more and more of us authentically empowered and as advanced as and we can be. Yeah, yeah, right. It is very much part of the democratization. Yeah. As as advanced as we can be, not only in the refinement of consciousness or spirituality, but also in the refinement of our character. And that's where, bless his heart, Ken's distillation of, you know, just because you're refined and mature and advanced on one line doesn't mean that therefore that applies across the board. Mm -hmm. That is one of the great myths of the spiritual guru archetype, the divinely realized one that pretty much has crashed to earth in the last 30 or 40 years uh, with you know one quote unquote scandal after another. But what does that mean? It means that an imbalance was perpetuating it, itself and it ceased to be viable. And so I, I feel like, yeah, thank you. Great, great consideration. And I think it's central for us all. I've had practitioners ask me through the years, certain individuals talking about surrender. Well, should I just surrender into this? Should I just open myself up and open mm. my heart to this, whatever the this is? And I would always respond with, you can't really force surrender, you know? So what does surrender mean to you? Mm -hmm. And that would take the individual deeper into, wow, what does surrender mean to me? And what is the appropriate move for me right now in this moment in my being? I use a term conscious skillful will mm -hmm. that helps individual individuals actually do that deeper investigation and drop and drop and drop. It's like the layers of the onion, right? And feel into what's appropriate. And then when you get a, a glimmer of what is appropriate, whether it be an honest, authentic surrender into whatever that this is, or is there something more, you can consciously choose to willfully pursue that, whatever that that is, once again. So... 
it's really helped a lot of people through the years and it continues to inform me mm-hmm. and to feel into what's appropriate for me right now. And then not just me, but if this is involving another individual or a group of people, how is my willful choices consciously chosen affecting that individual or group? This is part of the mutuality that we talk about. Always considering the other, because it's not just self-realization. It is other realization as well. Yeah, we like, that's one of the distinctions we like to make. What, what gets realized when the principle of mutuality is equally as real, divine, and important as waking and down, yeah. what gets realized is a quality of self plus other or, or self plus others or uh, uh, Jordan Gruber and James Fadiman, their book now, Your Symphony of Selves, love that phrase, selves plus others. Yeah. And, and there, there's a, a, a prominent singular force in the midst of all that is fundamental mystery. So it's, you know, it's not about knowing the other, like knowing what they think or you know, knowing what their interior is. But nonetheless, there is uh, a felt, a feeling intuition that is cellular, not merely psychic. Uh, of their beingness. And this is going to make us more and more inclined toward compassion and care for one another, for creatures, you know, and for, for the living earth. You and I were, Samuel, um, in an integral leadership clubhouse about science fiction um, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And in talking about your novel, Altamaya, you also used the word hagiography <laughs> to describe an earlier book that you'd written. And I, it's just such a fun word, mm-hmm. uh, the life stories of the saints, sages, and avatars. Mm-hmm. And because there aren't a lot of hagiographists in the world, <laughs> I thought maybe it'd be interesting to ask a question or two about that, you know, sort of as a genre, uh-huh. because I, you know. I've often lamented there's no good impartial biography of Adi Da as a person, you know, as, as like, here's a human being who said and did these things and had these experiences and these effects without taking a stand on it one way or the other. But it's pretty hard to be impartial in hagiography. You sort of have to be a little bit over the top, it seems. Um, I'm curious, Linda, you know, did you read the divine emergence of the world teacher? And, and if you did, what did you feel? And what did you think about Samuel as the author of that volume? Did you have any impressions? <laughs> um, really, no. out, really outing us. Uh, <laughs> the answer is no, no, and no. <laughs> okay. Good answer. I'm succinct. <laughs> she can do concise, man. <laughs> I cannot tell a lie. <laughs> That's great. Well, here's the related question, and and maybe there's also no answer to this one, but, you know, as as an author, Samuel, and as a student of the lives of some of the famous saints, what makes a good hagiography? I mean, did did you read The Promised God Man is Here and think, no, mine was better? Or did you think, uh, this isn't as fun as Yogananda's Divine Romance? Like, you've, you've explored some of these characters, 
And you've also written a lot. You know, is there, do you have a sense of what would be a good hagiography? A good hagiography, <laughs> which mine would have in this, uh, in this definition, wasn't able to be. A good one would be, I think, produced by an author who had, it, who, if not the disciple of that guru, sage, you know, spiritual being, had come into a sufficiently congruent quality of realization or awakeness presence themselves to be able then to exercise the optimal objectivity or impartiality of a really good secular biographer so that they would write with a deep appreciation and respect for that person's whole being, but also would pull away the, uh, you know, the, the, the necessity of hagiography is, uh, you know, in, in effect, uh, this has got to please the subject. Or, or one writes it in that way, even if they are no longer alive. And I think it's a, a really good question. And I think it's actually, I mean, I haven't read uh, Phil Goldberg's uh, biography of, of Yogananda yet. I've been meaning to, because Yogananda's actually remains uh, and his lineage, especially the grandfather there, Babaji, remains a, a real character in my kind of transcendental pantheon, actually for both of us in a way. But, uh, I expect that Phil did a pretty good job of that uh, because he was under no obligation to produce something that they would sell through self-realization fellowship unless they didn't mind their, their guru's story being told with a little bit more of the unhappy underside. And, you know, in my own process, actually, that was, that was interesting just to, to speak to writing that book when I was still a, a devoted disciple of, of Adida. Um, I had, uh, he, he said he was not going to review it before publication, but he gave the task of reviewing it and making sure that it, it met the mark to various senior other devotees. So I had a gauntlet to walk uh, before him getting the book in hand and letting us all know what he thought of it. And he was the kind of character who, if he had not liked it, you know, all, however many, I think published like 10,000 copies of the thing, they all would have been trashed. So uh, everybody was on tenterhooks. But as it turned out, he, uh, his response was basically fine, which coming from him, that was like triple A plus, you know, <laughs> you nailed it, dude. Uh, but, you know, I, part of what I did that we were, they were all, you know, my, my reviewers were wary of, and I was certainly worried. I did a lot of, I couldn't write it without offering my own creative interpretations that weren't part of the, the hagiographical story in the community. And some of them took big liberties, and uh, he, was, he was good with all that. That was 
kind of the swan song of my service there. And a mere, you know, yeah, a mere year, a year and a half later, two years later, uh, I wound up leaving the work. And thankfully, all the rest of this happened. Um, well, we're getting pretty close to the end now. Maybe one or two more questions. Um, I'm, I'm curious how you hold the kind of classic uh, spiritual dialectic between ongoing development and sudden shifts of context, right? There's areas where those are hard to tell apart if somebody's been, you know, working on themselves for years and assimilating state changes and feeding on profound transmissions, then maybe the water just gets warmer and warmer and warmer and suddenly boils and looks like a sudden change. But in the work that you folks are discussing, it seems like there's often um, a, a sudden radical shift of context among people that might not have had that history and put that work in. That for them, it's almost the beginning of a pathway of development rather than the culmination of a pathway of development. Mm -hmm. So how do, you, how do you hold ongoing accumulation of some kind of spiritual merit relative to sudden radical shifts of context? Well, I will jump in real quick on this one uh, initially, as I'm hearing you ask the question, I'm thinking, well, there are different levels of spiritual involvement and history and where we've come from, and it's very different for each individual. So one who may have had, let's say, 30 years of deep meditation and steeping in a particular tradition that has not revealed the, the jewel of what they're looking for. And let's say that might be an awakening. They've had all of this experience and they've had all these state experiences perhaps that came and went, but they're still not getting the, the thing, right? The, the, the happening. What we say is that, yes, there is a profound awakening that can occur for individuals coming from traditional backgrounds such as that, but everybody has their own unique background, whether it be a religious background, um, whether it be some individuals not being a seeker in any way, shape, or form, and yet they find themselves at some stage in their life feeling like something is still missing and they don't quite know what that is. We have worked with everyone from that spectrum to all kinds of spectrums to help individuals uniquely and authentically find what it is that they need to take them to the next moment, the next aha moment. And even after, once again, awakening or a conscious embodiment awakening, it's, that's not the end all. That is like a second birth is what we call conscious embodiment, that profound, undeniable, non-separate, non-dual realization of consciousness and matter. Every part of who you are, physically, emotionally, including the ego, everything. When an individual has that particular awakening, and it could be a moment, in time, a profound shift, a stable stage realization, or it could be something that the individual has oozed, we like to say, into a, a, a moment where they are working with a, t a teacher or a guide or whatever, 
uh, or even within themselves. And they go, something fundamentally is different and I can no longer doubt it. I can no longer uh, pretend, <laughs> you know, and act like, no, and, you know, those who know don't speak. Well, no, let's speak, you know, let's own it if that is your absolute truth. So in this oozing, it, once again, it comes from individuals who can be on all kinds of different levels of their development, but usually there is a, as we've discovered through the years, individuals who have been diligent seekers, who have done a lot of spiritual work, who have had for many years that desire to discover and realize what that missing piece is that enables them to be here fully. For me, I, I didn't come from the tradition of San, Samuel. I, did, I was not attracted to a guru uh, path. I, as I said earlier, never landed fully in anything, but I oozed into realizing that I'm still having this void in my belly and I don't know what that is. And all of the things that I studied and, and looked at and felt into sang to certain parts, but it was only until Samuel clarified certain things for me at him being my teacher early on, I realized, wow, you know, there is this, this landing that now I can fully own. I, I like to say to individuals also that I work with, if they're questioning their awakening, because I used to confirm people, if you will, in our school back in the day, um, whether or not I felt from what I'm hearing and feeling and seeing from the individual, have they landed in second birth awakeness? And I realized that, and I say this to people, no one can actually tell you that you're awake. They can have the um, educated experience of being with individuals who've had awakenings and they can look at the, the landmarks and the earmarks of what that might be, but everybody wakes up in such different unique ways. And so that being said, individuals like to have a confirmation perhaps from someone who've had, who has had that experience through the years for any given tradition, but it always comes down to, I am absolutely here and awake fully in my second birth or not. And I just wanted to speak that as well. And it's very powerful when someone absolutely knows, but it's not like, oh, I know because logically it's this, 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 and this. It's mysterious, it's paradoxical, it, it can really mess your mind up. <laughs> I remember back in the day, Ken, Ken used the F where he goes, yeah, it really Fs you up. <laughs> and we're going, yeah, I can sometimes because the thinking mind wants to doubt it sometimes. And so that's where the deep work comes in. Really, really uh, discerning what has taken place and what hasn't taken place. And if you keep going back to, no, I am here. There's still integration, there's still growth, there's still wisdom, there's still evolution in my future, but I am here. That's the awakeness. Yeah, so to... Uh offer 
I think a, a kind of a summary of, of you know, pieces of what uh, Linda was going into there. What we found is that there are, there are both gradual and sudden mm -hmm. openings uh, that take place in this work. And the people, uh, that, that term oozing actually came from the community. People started using that word. It's like, you know, there, there wasn't a moment for this person or for me if it was their story. Uh, and, and both have their value. In the bigger picture of kind of fuller human development, one way that I, I make a picture of it is that in this process, it seems if we, if we give uh, this particular quality of non-dual presence and capacity, if, if we make it into an avatar and let it speak for itself, it's as if it's been saying, you know, I've been sitting around waiting for people to gradually get to me over years and lifetimes and endless seeking, and there's no time anymore. So, excuse me, I'm going to jump over here and grab a, a toehold in any damn body mind I can get a hold of. But then, if you're smart, you'll get on with the growth that you didn't go through mm -hmm. to get to this. And, and I think that's from early on, you know, Mike, I had a question initially was, okay, people are, people are popping, yeah. people are breaking through and, you know, both longtime grizzled seekers and folks who weren't even thinking of all this, you know, yesterday I never heard of realization. Now I are one, that kind of thing. <laughs> And, and, and what we, what my question was, will this automatically prompt great character changes of, you know, a viable, mutually sustaining kind? And I think the, the honest answer to that is not necessarily. It, I think it takes education and it takes a willingness. We've seen people get very holed up even in this kind of realization and use it in effect as a shield against you know the signals they're getting from others in the world that they might do well to keep growing uh, and, that, and that that growth is going to be humbling there's going to be beginner's mind there's going to be getting taken down into your stuff so I really, really value this along with all your other questions, Lane. Yes. It's, it's just really good stuff. And, and I think, uh, yeah, the, the sober, you know, the, the humbler version of both the quest and the realization and what, you, what you life, your life then becomes when you're living this over time. I mean, that's a, another thing that, well, I'll finish that sentence. I think the, the humbler version of all that is becoming more and more prominent in this decade and hopefully beyond. And what we've seen, a number of the people we work with, like in, in intensive coaching, are individuals or couples who have been living this consciously with that kind of confidence for quite some time. And they suddenly are finding themselves in new territory, no map, no manual, 
WTF? I mean, you know, it's really like, uh, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm awake. And so what, you know, now what? And I think that's a harbinger of things to come for a lot of us. Well, this has all been very nice. I think very sincere and thoughtful and open. Uh, I want to thank you both for being with me today. And I also want to thank you for your ongoing life's work and acknowledge you as authentic elders in the tribe of the integrative metaverse that I find myself in. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so yeah, much, Layman. This has just been such a pleasure and honor to be with you. Thank you for the invitation and we bless you on wherever your journey leads you as all of our journeys continue to lead us wherever it may be, right? <laughs> and yeah, any way that we can be of help to you, yeah. please let us know and we'll do our best to, to be here for you. Yes, indeed.